It's really a pleasure to come to a brick-and-mortar school because most of my training has been done at a distance. My background's in construction. Uh, I spent 20 years in the trades, um, 18 years framing and siding, and 10 years under the auspices, uh, self-employed of, of academic construction because it put me before ACME in the phone book. Um, but what I want to do is talk about the Greek perfect today, uh, which is, sounds like a really dull, boring thing. Uh, but this this paper came out of um, this, I think, kind of a broader desire I have of um, one, reinvigorating interest in biblical languages so that we can reinvigorate interest in expository preaching. And that not just that people would be doing expository preaching, but that as they are able to more faithfully and fully engage the text, they also then would have more confidence uh, have more more accuracy than in in how they're communicating that, um, and and my work actually has its has its seeds and origins back in the poetics movement in Hebrew Bible, uh, so I've crossed over to the dark side unfortunately, and and I'll I'll, I'll bear that shame, um, but this paper. Um, basically was in response to kind of this, this ongoing dialogue about verbal aspect that really hasn't gone very far in 25 years. There have been some discussions, uh, but I feel like we're at this kind of stalemate of trench warfare. Um, and so what I wanted to do was set aside um, not all of the semantic issues, but to step back and say, what does the perfect do? Um, and And one of the things that I noticed in going back through and reviewing the literature is that um, there was this word that kept cropping up, um, not only in some of the New Testament grammars, uh, but especially in the, in the typological literature, in, in, in the linguistics uh, literature. And it was this notion of relevance. That the perfect, that the thing that separates the perfect from the other uh, tense forms, the other aspects, is that it, 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 it marks that verbal action as, as having uh, a, a particular relevance to the current reference time. Um, so in Comrie's uh, chapter devoted to the perfect, he describes, uh, quote, various kinds of perfect, all consistent with the general characterization of perfectness as the present relevance of a prior situation. Now, alongside the notion of, of relevance, you will we'll typically find this kind of bar, bipartite or two-piece two that people are trying to take two different things and kind of put it together with the perfect. So as we, we take a look at that, we, we find this in, in Bloss. Um, Bloss wonderfully describes the perfect as a combination of the aorist and the present. So if we were to modernize this, it would be a combination of perfective and imperfective non-past. Um, and then the pluperfect, he says it's a combination of the aorist uh, and, the, uh, and the imperfect, which would give you perfective, imperfective, past. Uh, we find Wallace having a, a very similar claim about the unaffected meaning as a combination of the external and internal. So if you're familiar with Fanning's work, that's the code word external for perfective, um, internal for, uh, for imperfective. And so the action is portrayed externally, this summary view, so this perfective piece, but then with this resultant state um, from the action is portrayed internally, so this continuing state. And more traditionally, you'll find in, in, the, in the, the traditional grammars, you'll find uh, a combination of a past event. It's, it's in very temporal languages, past event and ongoing results, ongoing state, that, that type of thing. Well, if we look at the, um, 
if we look at the, the typological literature, this is actually well-founded. Um, it's not something that's, that's idiosyncratic to, to Greek or to the, the older grammarians, but it's actually how the perfect tends to be manifested. Uh, DNS bot, so I give you a fuller quote and, and a footnote at the bottom for you to follow up, uh, but I, I strongly encourage reading through that, that, that volume if you can afford the dollar a page price, and hopefully you can find it in your library. Um, but it will give you a great background from a typological standpoint. Bot, it comes from a mood-prominent language, and he's Indian, so he's not coming at it from an English, English-centric or Western-centric framework. But what he says is the perfect across languages, basically there are different kinds of uh, languages, and, and there is no language that is aspect-only, tense-only, or mood-only. Um, that they, Most languages, there are very few languages that are tenseless. I mean, very few. We're talking, you, could, you won't run out of digits on your person to count them. And they have very strict um, uh, identifying factors. Um, but, so in, in, in light of that, you find languages tend to be tense prominent, meaning it, like in English, where that's kind of the highest value of the language and you see that reflected in the inflection and, and kind of how that drives everything else. Greek would be a tense prom- or an aspect prominent language. Um, and again, we see aspect being prominent, and that's what kind of drives everything else. It doesn't mean that tense is absent, but it's not playing the same role as, as it would in, in say, English. But the, Bot has found that the perfect, uh, as, an, as, a, as, a, as a concept, as a grammatical concept, tends to be a combination of whichever two things are dominant. So in an aspect or a tense prominent language, it's a combination of past and non-past. And we look at what our traditional English descriptions are and the, I would say, the tense-based traditional grammars, they're saying it's a past event with ongoing consequences, state of affairs, relevance, whatever that would be. If we go to a mood-prominent language, which probably, unless we've been to India, none of us have seen or known, um, but in, in, in a mood-prominent language, it's the distinction between realis, the real thing, which would be your not your past up to present, and then your irrealis would be that which hasn't happened yet, which would be your future. So you'd have kind of a future, if we were to flip that over into a temporal, it would be a future, non-future distinction. But the perfect in those languages is a combination of, of this thing that's concrete and has happened or is happening, and this not yet piece, this irrealis piece. Where finally in, in Greek, as an aspect prominent language, it's this combination of perfective, very much like Bloss and Wallace have observed, and, and imperfective. And some people, and Con Campbell is one of those, and we've talked about this at, at length, he, he claims this is, this is not possible. You can't have both. Well, it's worked for a lot of other languages, um, and, and it does work. It, it is possible, and it's attested uh, in, in a, a number of the languages, and we see it reflected in terms of the, the kind of intuitively driven grammatical descriptions that we find in, in, in the older traditional grammars, um, and also in Wallace's grammar. And I've told him out of respect, I, I, t- I talk respectfully about the dead grammarians, just to kind of talk about that, that era in terms of traditional grammar, and I told Dr. Wallace that I placed him in that category out of respect, um, which he, he, I think he liked it, I don't know, he's hard to read sometimes, but um, this, 
this connection of perfective and imperfective, what does that practically look like? If we go back and look at what the classical grammarians have done and the classical linguists, they, they, have, been, they have not been bothered by this debate. They are far ahead of us. Now, it's not to say that we can take everything that the classicists have done and just bring it in, because we do have historical changes, uh, but Sander Orion's has done some fantastic work in trying to describe um, the perfect. And so he's, he's providing a, a more practical description of what, what the relevance idea, this relevance to the current time actually means. And he draws that out by differentiating and contrasting the aorist from the perfect. So whereas the aorist, if, if we have reference time, meaning current, current time, if, if we're talking a, a, a a present or, or non-past time, or it could be a past time if we're talking past. Whatever the reference time is, where, wherever you're, you're grounding something. Uh, so, with uh, say an imperfect, you'd, you'd be reaching back to the past um, from from some other reference point. Whereas a, a present um, or a, a perfect would be that uh, generally time of speaking, um, but. Whatever the reference time is, from that point, the aorist is reaching back to something that, that, that precedes. It's logically anterior. Um, it, it, in most cases, will mean it's completed. And that fits with perfective, meaning look, the external view that it's looking at it as a whole. In other words, you can see both the beginning and the end of the action with perfectivity. Um, in most cases, that's going to be complete, or if it's, if it's something that doesn't have an, a, an explicit end to it, so these would be your gnomics and your timeless heiress and these kinds of things, they still are going to be before, or at least have started in some respects, before the, the current reference time. What the perfect does that the heiress does not is it's not just going back to that logically anterior, perfective time, but it's the imperfective piece is, is that link back to the reference time. So in that sense, a perfect, uh, a perfect verb subsumes the perfective, the aorist type idea within it. Does that make sense? Uh, that if you can have a perfect, you could have an aorist to some extent. I mean, there will be, I mean, in, term, in, in principle... And so the choice to use a perfect as opposed to using an aorist is the choice to not just point back to it, but to provide a link back because there is some reason, something more will be said about it. And we're going to go through some examples, but that's, that's kind of the general overview. Um, so from, from a kind of a generic typological standpoint, the perfect is a combination of perfective and imperfective. Not, not in, in complete, um, uh, n- not in a simple joining of terms, but conceptually, metaphorically, where the perfective represents this, this logically anterior action. I'm trying to avoid using temporal language, but quite often it will overlap with past time. But it's logically anterior, meaning it had to have occurred, even if we don't know when it occurred, it had to have, it necessarily has preceded the reference time, wherever that reference time is, whether it's current or, or some past point. Um, 
there are two different kinds of actions. So we're talking, if, if we look at lexemes, if we look at lemmas, certain lemmas, certain actions are going to naturally have an endpoint in them, like clap. If I used clap in, in an, imper, uh, in an Im imperfective verb, uh, I was clapping, or I am clapping, it would make it sound iterative because clapping is, is almost an instantaneous thing. So the, there are certain limitations that the lemmas itself, that the word forms themselves, um, the semantic constraints of that, whether if, if they in, include an end, there's going to be a limitation. You're going to end up with something that's a past complete thing. If you have something that is autelic, that doesn't have its end, like an activity, like sleeping, there's no, uh, like running, there's no explicit completion in it, unless I add some kind of a quantifier to, to make an end, like I slept, uh, I was sleeping uh, for, for, for three hours, or I slept for three hours. I could quantify it that way, but otherwise you wouldn't really know when the action ended. Or running, uh, I, I ran all the way to the library. And if I put some kind of adverbial modifier at the end, I can make an end, but there's nothing inherently in the limit itself that, that provides that limitation. So the imperfective component, so that's the perfective side, and you're going to get two different things with the, the telic verbs, the, those that have a natural endpoint in them. You're going to get that prototypical dead grammarian kind of definition of a completed event with ongoing things. That's where it's going to, that's where that kind of definition is going to fit best. But when you have an autelic action, meaning something that doesn't have a close, you're going to end up more with that state, a state of affairs, and, and as well, morphology, um, a, a voice will affect that. Middle voice, you're not going to be able to have a, a telic, it's, uh, a telic action that's going to end up more in the, the autelic realm. Um, so there are other limitations. So trying to, to create a one-size-fits-all explanation and account of the perfect, like what, what Campbell tried to do and what Dr. Porter has tried to do and what Fanning have tried to do, are, are, are only going to be looking at part of the elephant. And as we did our, uh, convened our informal symposium over three nights at the Pratt Street Ale House in Baltimore two years ago, after the perfect storm, what we found was if we could just cut and paste from different pieces of the presentation, we could actually put together a whole picture. They were all partly right, except where they weren't. Um, and they were looking at certain parts of the data. And so in that sense, in, in this presentation, it's not to take away or disparage what's been done, but the goal is to step back and, and look more broadly at, at what, fact, what the factors are that are affecting these things. So that's the perfective side. The imperfective is that connection back um, to, the, to the current reference time that the, that the aorist alone would not have provided. And then in terms of the, the effect that this brings about, of this connection back to the present, it's this expectation of relevance to the current situation. Um, and one other thing I noticed as I started running through the data is there is a directionality to this, this relevance constraint, that it's, it's always flowing downhill, always. Um, it, it's not something that can go one way or the other. It's... It, the, Whatever is logically proceeding will be relevant to something that follows. There's a caveat, because we do find a lot of the perfects that follow, but it, in those cases, it's always in a grammatically dependent relationship, where that grammatical dependency points things back up, and that's what redirects it. 
So let's go through some examples before I get more, uh, yeah, but before I get more skepticism, and we'll see we'll see how this works. So we would expect, based on the, the the perfect action being logically anterior to what it's relevant to, that it would precede um, what it's relevant to. Um, but that only accounts for about a quarter of the instances that we find uh, for this for the purposes of this paper. I went through Luke. Romans, I looked at Romans and I was unhappy with the data because it seemed very skewed. There were only one or two instances where a perfect preceded what it was relevant to um, compared to what I found in Luke. So I went on into Hebrews and Hebrews was more along the lines of uh, more representative of the data that I found in, in, in Luke. So this is mainly going to be accounting. So I'm going to look at representative examples, but I've worked through all of the data um, in those three books, all of the perfect indicatives. Um, so there's this logical progression in, in, the, in the discourse. The perfect precedes current reference time. It's logically anterior, and then it's relevant to what follows. So here's an English example. I could say, I've lost my wallet. If I just said, I lost my wallet, using a simple, uh, a simple past, you'd say, bummer, or, well, man, you're in trouble because how are you going to get on your plane? Um, if I said, I've lost my wallet, you're probably going to have, that's, that's going to implicate something, which is this expectation that, can I borrow some money? I'd, I would go on to do something. I've lost, I've lost my knife. Um, I've forgotten my keys. Now, in, in modern American English, we've tended to just opt for the simple past and not use the more complex perfect. And so we've kind of, we're, we're pragmatically using kind of like the aorist instead of the perfect to more fully mark things like in British or Canadian English, they would still do. Um, so we've kind of dumbed down the languages they complain about and, and, and rightly so. Um, but if we do, we still have this implicature then with, with the perfect. Um, so let's take a look at an example uh, from Luke 14.22. So we've got this, uh, this is the, the parable of the great banquet. The master has sent out the servants to invite the poor, the crippled, and the blind to fill the table. Um, and this is expected to have filled the banquet. Um, but in coming back and reporting that they've fulfilled the command, they know that the, the table is still not filled. And, and ostensibly to kind of put off being potentially yelled at for not, not obeying, they've said, hey, we, we've done this, but, but there's still room. Um, same with um, Jesus' statements about John, comparing John the Baptist to his own ministry. And basically what you see is, he's done this and gotten this result. I've done this and gotten this result. And you have this comparison here of saying, it's a no-win situation. You guys will not accept either. What, what, what's going to, what is it going to take for you to accept this? In each of these the, the perfect action is not what's most salient. It's bringing up a state of affairs based on its relevance to what follows. So that's the connection back to the present, the expectation that, again, um, something more will be said about it. That won't always work, but that's, that's basically the, the, uh, the implication there. Another example from Romans 11.20 where Paul is, is talking to the Gentiles, um, is telling them that um, the Gentiles have been grafted in figuratively by virtue of their faith, contrasting with the, the unbelieving Jews. Um, and, and they have this security and thinking, hey, we're, we're hot stuff now. Um, 
But Paul warns them, you know, they were broken off, and you, uh, but you stand firm because of faith. But then the next statement undermines that, undermines that confidence. And again, potential thoughts of arrogance um, and overconfidence. Now, as I said, this only represents a portion, um, about 25 to 30% of the data. Far more of the perfects follow what they're relevant to. And in Romans, it's about 80%. Over 80% of them follow. So you still have reference time. You have the action that it's relevant to. And then the perfect follows, but it's going to be in a logical or grammatically dependent relationship. So by grammatically dependent, so relative clauses, kathos, hati, any dependent any dependent conjunction like that, so standard grammar, but also in gar, gar clauses, where it's logically dependent. It's not grammatically dependent, but it's stepping off that strengthening, supporting information, if you've read the discourse grammar, or read Levinson's discourse features. Um, so in, in either case, it's, um, it's not advancing the main line of the discourse, um, it's stepping off and providing offline information, thematic information that's, that's very important, but it's not advancing the writer's purpose. And by having that grammatical dependency relationship, either grammatical or logical, it's redirecting that relevance constraint back to what um, it, it's relevant to, which is that, that um, either logically or grammatically... Um, um, uh, not depend... Uh, I'm sorry, Related. the governing, yeah, the, the governing, governing clause. So if I rephrase my, um, my original statement, could you lend me some money? I could say, probably colloquially, I've lost my key, or I've lost my wallet, but then you'd be pragmatically having to, to make that connection back. But that's why I've added the information, is so you know why I'm asking. Um, I've lost my wallet is not the most important piece. Me getting some money so I can do whatever I need to do because I've lost my wallet is, is the more salient piece. So we have some examples. A lot of the Old Testament quotations, um, again, when they're dis, um, uh, introduced by Gigarapti, the perfect, um, again, is this fits the profile. We could say it's a formulaic thing because that's typically all that's used, but in terms of what the perfect conveys, it, it does fit with what you would expect the perfect to be doing, which is to say it's in a dependent clause. This is relevant and, and strengthening it. It's relevant to, to the main clause to which this is dependent, and it's, it's redirecting that relevance back. The, the, the expectation from Isaiah is not what's, what's most important. It's the fact that, that John is, is doing this and what his ministry is characterized by. Um, in Hebrews, we have the same kind of thing going on about this uh, having much to say to you that this difficult to explain. Why? Because you've become sluggish in hearing. The sluggish in hearing is not what he's interested in, but, but it's, it's what's, what's needing to be said in terms of redirecting them and correcting their behavior. I'm going to skip this next example. I think you have some of them on the handout, uh, but just for sake of time to, to get through. What I found most interesting um, is there are um, a remainder of perfects that don't fit that profile I just told you. They don't logically precede, nor are they in a grammatically dependent relationship. So maybe Rungi's wrong. That's always an option. My wife would say that that's very much alive and 
good option. Um, uh, but these instances occur in a place where that's not possible. So in Luke's gospel, you will find quite often speeches that are responding to a previous situation, a previous speech, beginning with a perfect. We do the same thing in English, and other languages do as well, where we'll use a perfect as a pragmatic means of saying no. The perfect can be used to counter or redirect a a statement. It's as though we're saying... um, Instead of saying, "Would you like?" Uh, w- w- I've um, instead of saying no because I've just eaten something, we elide that initial part and simply provide the reason, and, and we're expected to understand why that is. We find this in um, the temptation of Jesus. Each of his responses is a perfect. Now, granted, there are. Um, Old Testament quotations, and again, you could write this off and say, well, that's just a formulaic thing. They're just doing their weird thing that they do. That, uh, but at the same time, it fits with the profile of the perfect. And, and Jesus doesn't tell him, no, I won't do this. He simply provides a quotation that makes it clear that this is his basis for not doing it. And it's pragmatically then uh, related back to what proceeds to address the question. Uh, we find the same kind of thing uh, when in uh, Luke 13, where the owner of the house act- never actually says no. Instead, the reason why not is offered in a perfect verb, and it serves as that same pragmatic function of no. Um, and we'll do this in, in English, but qu- most often we'll end up including something like just, um, I, I've already or I've, I've just done something. And so we'll add additional markers, and I believe German is, is quite similar in that in using an additional adverb of some kind, um, where Greek, um, Greek does not. Um, final example, then. Um, this is the story of uh, Jesus coming to eat at Simon's house. Uh, the sinful woman comes in, cries on Jesus' feet, washes his feet, anoints his feet with oil, and Jesus has just gone through, and, and Simon has this opening question of, if he really knew who she was, you know, how, how can he let her do this? If he really was a prophet and knew who she was, this would not be happening. Um, but Jesus basically is addressing this by working him through, working Simon through the issue of, of this idea of, uh, to, to, uh, to the one who, who much, who've been forgiven much, um, they love much. Um, and we see she didn't come for forgiveness, but basically Jesus is telling her about something different that she didn't come expecting, um, and certainly that Simon didn't expect to hear, uh, that, that her sins had been forgiven. And then finally, as those around him are incredulous that he um, has forgiven her, again, in verse 50, he responds to the situation by saying, your faith has saved you. And what's interesting is what's based on what's going on in each one of these situations, especially in verse 50, it's your faith has saved you is where the emphasis is placed as essentially as opposed to something else. It's in a place that faith is placed in a role where it's, it's correcting some wrong, uh, wrong conception. Uh, we also find um, 
the, these kind of countering perfects in the epistles. And it, they're found in context where you have a counterpoint of some kind that's been activated or introduced, and then the perfect follows it, basically knocking off that, that counterpoint or knocking off this, this false idea. Sometimes that's an amenda relationship. Sometimes it's, it's just um, it's, it's more um, it, it's unmarked, as we find here in, in Romans 11, where Paul has begun the chapter asking whether God has rejected Israel. He answers no in verse 2, but without elaborating why that is. And then finally, as he comes down to explain uh, what God had done with, with Israel in Elijah's day and his response about preserving the, the remnant, um, you have this perfect that's going back and essentially correcting. It's not an issue of God being, having rejected his people. It's an issue of what's really gone on is, is God has preserved a remnant. And this is the correct view of things, not, and, and that the, the rejection issue should be set aside um, as, as a misunderstanding the situation. Um, one final example then, um, and this is one of the, the Mende examples uh, from Hebrews 8.6. And you're looking at um, a comparison of the earthly high priest and how he would offer things. But then we come down to look at Jesus, and we have a switch with Nuni from from what this uh, Nuni uh, from the from the past situation. We have De marking uh, a distinct point, but then we have our perfect verb uh, about Jesus having attained a more excellent ministry in comparison to the one that the earthly high priest had. So, in summary. Um, the basically the 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 original ideas that the the traditional grammarians have have posited is is largely correct this 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 combinative view but it's not a a just a simple combination of those two things the perfective is going to be uh, the perfectivity is going to be affected by whether it's it's not a relic, excuse me, a telic, a telic or a telic. Uh, it is old, so I'll grant that. Perhaps it was a slip. Um, but um, the nature of the, the lexical, the, the lexical semantics of the lemma itself, of the verbal action, are going to limit whether it's going to be that completed thing or whether it's more of a state or state of affairs. Uh, but the imperfective piece, again, is, is that connection. Instead of just going back to the past like the aorist, it's going back, but then springing back up to reference time. So with the perfect, that would be current reference time. With the pluperfect, it would be whatever the, the past reference time is. Um, and that, that the effect of this, this connection back to the present is some expectation that this is you need to know this, and it's not what's most salient in and of itself, it's what it's supported. What it what it's related to is the more the more important element. Um, and and in terms of um, when when we find perfects that are used in context where it can't be related back to something else, it's not preceding what it's relevant to. It's not an illogical or grammatical dependency. When it's used just on the main line by itself, as in a response to a preceding uh, conversation. Um, or when it's in response to a counterpoint, there and only there does the perfect accomplish that front-grounding or intensive kind of use that Dr. Porter and Dr. Campbell have claimed. So they're, they're partly correct in the sense that the perfect can do that, but it's in a minority of the situations, and we can account for it as a pragmatic effect of a use 
in a particular context because we don't find it doing that in these other more typical contexts. So in that sense, we can go, or at least my goal is to go through and be able to explain how it is that they got where they are um, and, and why they've claimed what they have. So with Dr. Fanning, he's claimed perfective plus state of actionsart. We can see where that comes from because he's looking at the perfective and he's looking at this ongoing state. Dr. Porter has focused on probably the um, the middle verbs and the uh, the telic uh, the atelic verbs, which account for the majority. If he's counting them statistically, that would account for the majority of the perfects. And so then it would look stative from that standpoint in terms of a one size fits all would cover the most. Then you look at Dr. Campbell; he's claiming it's imperfective. Um, which would fit with what we see with bot, this combination of perfective and imperfective. Um, so I believe this is a way forward, but it's, it certainly needs more work. I'm in the process of working through data in the Gospel of John, because John kind of lives on the edge, on the frontier. And if we can account for John's usage, I feel pretty confident that we've kind of nailed stuff down. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a work in process.